I was researching you and I didn't, I saw you hadn't done too many podcasts before it seemed to be, um, <laughs> or was I just not um, in the right place? I've, 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 you know, I've done a few, I, I, I get quite a few requests for them and well, I don't know. Well, they have to write you a song. I mean, now the, it's a competition here for future requests. I've set, I'm setting the bar. Yeah. You're making it tough on them. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I do them from, from time to time. I'm not, I'm not as a, you know, you interviewed Steve and he's, Steve is a force of nature, you know, so. <laughs> I'm, but, I, he was my advisor, you know, and, and there's this kind of moment as a, a long time ago, but there's this kind of moment, uh, when you are somebody's student, maybe one day you do something like really smart, you know, and you think, ah, the student will surpass the master, and, <laughs> but, but you don't hold that thought very long with Steve. <laughs> He's, he's, he's more, uh, I, I don't know if I've ever met anyone as just, uh, I mean, he's brilliant and, uh, which, you know, people who love him would agree with and uh, people who don't love him, you know, would get mad about, you know, hearing that, but he's also, I think one of the qualities of Steve is that uh, there's a few, I mean, he's incredibly enthusiastic and he has like an, a nose for connections that other people don't see. But the other thing, and, and it's enormously, I think, uh, valuable in a lot of uh, areas of living is he is almost completely impervious to people trying to dissuade him doing things. So like we've written articles before that, you know, the reviews came back and they were just like horrific, you know, just, you, you know, like, felt like you want to quit your job and go do something else. And, you know, Steve reads the review, you know, and, and he's, he's like, well, I, you know, I mean, I think we could fix this and, and this, I think we could, we could write that section or we could do this analysis. And I'm like, Steve, did you read the same review as I read? You know, they hated this paper. You know, they hate us. They think we should like stop being scientists, you know, <laughs> but he, he, he persists, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's admirable. Well, I guess that's one of the qualities you must have if you're going to start something a movement like he started and, and with your help, I mean, I feel like I'm speaking to, I feel like I'm speaking to completing the set today with the actual royalty, having you on the show. <laughs> well, goodness. I, th that's always a funny, uh, I mean, it's a funny piece. I mean, act was, so the secret with the co-founder of act business is that act was really built by a community. You know, acceptance and commitment therapy was made by a community of people. You know, I ended up on the first book, partly the timing was good and partly 
Kirk Strassel and I were the only people audacious enough to tell Steve that he would be foolish not to include us to help him write that book. <laughs> I mean, he told both of us no the first time, you know, and, mm. you know, we asked him and he was just like, nah, you know. That's a great and strategy to have. You, you'll be foolish not to work with me. <laughs> well, you know, and I mean, I was, I mean, Kirk was a, you know, a senior guy and a mm. very experienced researcher. I was a graduate student at the time. So I'm with, was, I'm with him. <laughs> kind of audacious, you know, and, and uh, he refused it, but then, you know, I don't know, a year or so later, the book wasn't finished yet. And he got Kirk and I together and he was like, all right, I want you guys to help me write this book. And so, well, well, I've done act. I had, a, had Stephen, he was my second or third guest. And yeah, I think I started at the top. I didn't realize at the time what a giant he is. And I mean, it's great to speak to you guys while you're still alive. <laughs> yeah. Because I hadn't, I, well, I hadn't got, had Victor Frankel and had one of his students was late, you know, many generations later. So with you guys, I'm really, I'm still in time, you know? You know, when I was, I have a kind of an odd academic history. Like I dropped out of high school and, you know, had a mm, mm, kind of a, mm, misspent uh, youth and research I, I and so I started back in college or I started in college and in, in when I was 30 and I went to a community college which I don't know what the equivalent would be in the UK or if there is even an equivalent but a community college is like a two-year university and you know, they do offer some technical degrees, but they also offer a pathway for somebody who's a high school dropout to find their way to university. And the psychology club that I joined there, we got to invite a guest speaker and Frankel was still alive and I uh, tried to invite him, but he needed a uh, first class airfare plus first class airfare for his wife. And and, uh, you know, our budget wasn't, uh, quite up to it, but. Oh, it's so close. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh, I didn't realize it was even that close. Yeah. Because. Yeah. I mean, his. He. Yeah. Because he, he was writing about the, the Holocaust, obviously. So, but, uh. He I didn't he realize. Lived a, connect. A, yeah. He lived a quite a long life. Oh, well, the existentialists are central in my universe so did you ever imagine from then that you know from community college to being a phd and authoring a book and being so respected a psychologist yeah, that's just seemed like a somebody had told you about that back then i would have laughed out loud <laughs> at the time at the time my ambition was you know because i had this horrific history of um addiction and uh, alcoholism and you know i mean it was a horror show and i you know got sober in 1985 and you know pretty quickly figured out that i probably would need some education because i didn't know how to do anything except felonies you know and uh, so you know i went you know hence the community college and 
And I think I had the idea that maybe, just maybe I could uh, be like a drug counselor or something like that. They had this like two-year program and you could be a drug counselor. And, and I thought, I probably, you know, I'd never finished anything that took that long. And I didn't think I probably could do that, but maybe I could do that. But the idea of like, you know, even like a bachelor's degree or doctoral training, you know, I mean, I, it wasn't in my universe of experience. You know, I didn't grow up around, I grew up, I mean, neither of my parents graduated from high school. I, I don't know. I, I doubt, I don't think I knew any PhDs growing up. I suppose I knew people who went to college, you know, like my teachers went to college to be teachers. And I suppose I knew that my dentist went to college and had a couple of friends who, whose, you know, dads were like engineers or something, but it was not in my universe of thinking even, and especially, you know, considering my, you know, the the 15 preceding, you know, years did not make such things likely. But looking back at it, I mean, addiction counselor, you wouldn't got, you wouldn't want to go to a sex therapist who was a virgin, would you? <laughs> well, you know, and at the time I had this idea that only an addict could understand an addict. And that's a pretty common notion and people carry that with a lot of different difficulties. I think that the longer I, you know, the further down the road I traveled, the less unique addiction seemed to me, you know, on the surface, formally it looks different, but functionally you know, it, it squeezes lives down into small little spaces in ways that are not unlike a lot of other things that people struggle with, some of which we call disorders, and really, frankly, some of which we call great success. Because you've also written about anorexia and bulimia, so you haven't suffered from those. No, I have not. And some of those books were collaborations, you know, that there were people who I cared about and who I could see that their heart was in the work and it was in my uh, capacity to help them oh, you know, move, see, yeah. move the, move the ball down the road. So the anorexia book was my third PhD, I think, Rhonda Merwin. And, uh, she's, you know, astonishing and brilliant and, and, you know, deeply knowledgeable about anorexia. And, and so, you know, I have, uh, played a, you know, rhythm guitar for her. This is like a collab, um, like a musical collaboration. It, you know, a, you, you gotta have a rhythm guitar player. So, you know. Like, that's, that's cool. If everybody has to play lead guitar, then that's a terrible sounding band. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you can have a little spot of that here and there, but, but 
you know, yeah, acapella bands. Yeah, they they've got a limited repertoire. I mean, the barbershop yeah. quartet. Yeah. So you know, I've I've done a number of things like that, and I also I've tried to um, avoid in my career the tendency to specialization, especially specialization around psychiatric uh, labels, which I have very little fondness for. Well, let's, it would quite a lot of contempt and um, okay. so, so I didn't want to get, I'm sorry. No, no. So going back to, so the red line between all these things, cause you said that, cause just for anyone new to act, because I've, I'd Steven on the show and I, mm -hmm. I wrote the song about it and I still actually use that song sometimes just to stop the voice in my head. And I <laughs> yeah, I remember the first line I can, most of us live in a state of constant confusion as automatic thoughts cause circuitous delusions. We don't want these feelings to so choose distractions. It really helps me. It's good to have uh, touchstones in your life, things that uh, help you remember, that help you kind of come to ground and, and, uh, so that applies to any disorder you're saying, essentially it's the, the same, it's the same yeah, I, disease, just I mean, a different name. You know, I think that, you know, can you sort people according to these categories? Yes. Are is that sorting process useful? That's much more in question, uh, I would say. And, you know, I think the heart of human suffering, we're much more alike uh, than we are different. Even when we don't look alike, we're much more alike than we are different. I just looked at a, I was just looking at a study recently. And it was this giant aggregation of, you know, all kinds of brain studies. You know what I mean? You know, a lot of the brain science has gone on in, in this universe of human suffering has been to sort of find the broken part or the broken pattern or the miswired bit. And, you know, the promise of that has been constant for decades. And, you know, if you, you know, look at certain patterns of activation and you sort of find a distribution of those patterns and some people are a little more and some people are a little less and, you know, you get some kind of distribution of, you know, the likeliness of that patterning. And then you take a group of people who are like non-clinical controls and you do run those same tests and you also find this distribution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then what the science very often does is say, is the peak of that distribution, you know, the, some measure of central tendency, like and the average statistically different, you know, the one than the other. And, you know, the larger the numbers of people that you have in the study, the smaller the differences that you can find. But, you know, one figure in particular I was looking at, 
you could see the, you know, like if this is like the normal distribution and this is like the distribution of people with a, a major depression, you know, what it looked like was, you know, like this. And so the overwhelming majority of people in either one of those distributions, I mean, if you're in one of those distributions, you're much more likely to be in the area of overlap than you are to be in the area that is sort of unique. Uh, so if, so if you, you're saying that if you're obese, you're going to be depressed and if you're depressed, you're more likely to. Well, th that no, just clear. Like if you show a certain pattern of, uh, like you, you, uh, are identifiable as depressed mm -hmm. and we've identified this certain pattern of brain activation, you know, using fMRI of you know, or some sort of imaging study. Well, not everybody's going to be exactly the same. I mean, there's no test for depression or mm, mm. any, as a matter of fact, there are no sensitive and specific biological markers for any major psychiatric disorder. I mean, you ever notice when you go, you know, for a uh, uh, psychiatric diagnosis, they don't give you a blood test or anything because there is not one. And then there's no there's no brain test. I mean, so, you know, what you see is uh, a distribution. So, you know, the pattern that you're finding in people who are depressed, you know, some people have it, you know, more so, and some people have it less so. Okay. And you'll also find that, you know, pattern in non-clinical folks, some people more so, some people less so. The question is, is it like these are the depressed one and these are the non-depressed one? Well, it turns out, no, the, actually the, the patterns that you see in depressed and non-depressed people overlap. And as a matter of fact, they overlap so much that you need pretty big numbers to even tell that they aren't identical distributions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what this is to, to say is that we're more alike than we're different. Okay. You know, we're, we're way more alike, uh, than we're different. We're may we're way more alike than it seems than it appears. So after all these years of studying all these different conditions, because acceptance commitment therapy is, is a, as I understand, a great series of exercises people can use to, to work with the, any problem, but what have you seen a sort of a red line? Is there a cause behind it? That is all that is consistent you know i mean of course that that has one of been been one of the big you know things that has been chased in psychiatric disorders and you know one of the causes that they've looked for is brain causes and we haven't found them no. you know things that commonly understood cause of depression is the this sort of chemical imbalance theory which is just false, you know, I mean, someone needs to drive a stake through the heart of that thing and put it in the grave. Not that brains don't have anything to do with the motion of behavior, but you know, depression, you know, the idea that depression is caused by, you know, too little serotonin, you know, the kind mm. of court low theory or any tuned up version has not been found to be true. It's also so that you can, you know, you can look at things like ACEs, um, 
adverse childhood events. And, you know, it predicts certain kinds of psychological uh, difficulties. You know, like if you get a, start to get a count of the number of adverse childhood events people have, then you can guess that they might be a little more. But you'll also find people that have a bunch of those adverse childhood events who don't have those outcomes. If I had to make my bet and no one's been able to, you know, generate any kind of definitive, like if this, you know, like if you're exposed to this virus, <laughs> then you get this illness. No one's been able to do. And I would say that that is likely because human behavior understood broadly, emotion, cognition, sense of vitality and purpose that these are complexly determined, that they are complexly determined. That there are, are, there's more than one way to get there. Some of them almost certainly have to do with some vulnerabilities that we carry. Some of those vulnerabilities may in fact be, be genetic, although they're as likely to be epigenetic, you know, in their, you know, how has the environment operated? on genes and you know that is going to be a, a long and complex a bit of unpacking i mean so it's guess, nice if you have, have nice simple causes so i guess you come in after the damage is done there's a problem and then you have your your work your you're a mirror and you get people to reframe their reactions their rigid ways of thinking. Is that, am I, am I saying that? Well, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, I, I, I'm not wild about the language of a broken and a damage, unless you're pointing to actual things that are broken uh, and damaged. I mean, you know, that, that's kind of a big assumption that, you know, people have the psychological troubles that they have because they've got uh, broken brains or they've got broken histories. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not like a flat earther or anything. You know, if you show, if you say, I think Kelly's got a broken arm and you show me an x-ray and I can see the break and I'm like, okay. You know, if you say Kelly's got a broken brain, you know, show me the broken part. But, you know, I just talked to you about those distributions. Mm. It's, that it's just not that uh, simple. I like to stay at the level of description, at the level of, you know, what, you know, I can see and feel and know, and the same with my clients. So, you know, when a client comes to me, they come to me with things broken in their lives. If their brain is broken, well, I, I don't know about that. And I don't know anything I could tell them scientifically about that. But very often there are things that are broken in their lives. And very often they have a sense that there's um, no way uh, forward. Mm. Mm. And that, see, I assume that, that there's uh, always a way forward 
Yeah, you see, you you would make a great podcast because you really listen to. I've heard heard you where you talk about you, you you got started to talk about mindfulness because you because you you found yourself being distracted in in therapy sessions. So you ask your patients to repeat things and to slow down and say it again. So that must really help to unpick what the words people are using and how they frame things to themselves I, and to other people. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I say behaviorists complexly determine, it, it's very often the case with behavior that you can't really tell what it means by seeing what it looks like. And, you know, you could think of casual instances of that are, are all around us, you know, so... You know, you told your mom you were going to go do something. And she says, well, you could do that. Mm. Well, just that little inflection in voice means that, you know, she's not, you know, it sounds like an option being presented, but it's not an option being presented. It's a set of evaluations that are being yeah. presented. Well, well, if you get that, and you know, that's, that's true for our own behavior. So it's not like we walk around with awareness of the sources of the organization of our own behavior. We hurt, we hide, and very often we are not in a particularly good touch with what hurts and what we're hiding from. I remember telling a, a counselor of some sort who I saw back in Yes, it was probably about uh, five or six years uh, before I uh, got sober in uh, uh, 85. And I remember telling this counselor that my grandfather told me this story. And the story was that if you could catch a honeybee in your hands like this and not let any light in, that it wouldn't sting you. Now, I have no idea if this is true or not. <laughs> but, you know, this is the story anyway. And, but you see, the problem here is once you've got him trapped is how do you get rid of him without letting light in, right? And so I told this uh, therapist, I told him, I said, it's like I've had something trapped in here, but I've had it trapped in here for like so long, I can't even remember what it is. And I just know that if I let any light, you know, and, and I think... Uh, that's not an uncommon thing, you know, that people will come to a place where they don't, they just don't know. And having a sense of the, the landscape of, you know, love and longing and fear requires patience, requires attention, a certain devotion. If you're a person who is suffering, you have likely not encountered very many people who come to your suffering with, you know, you know, with that perspective, you know, they're, they're problem solving. Sometimes too quick um, to problem solve. And like, I don't think that the sort of 
terra ignata of, you know, human longing is the enemy. You know, I think it's, it's uh, beautiful and complex and always ready to surprise you. People are not used to having their suffering encountered in that way. But that, that is, that is how it is for me. And so I always, you know, people tell me the overt examples of their suffering and, and they, they're things that get your attention, you know, like a panic attack or, or a broken, destroyed relationship or feeling like you're dead inside. And I take those things as, you know, I take them seriously. I, I take them as vertical, but I don't take them as exhaustive. So I, I, I was just consulting uh, uh, a while back on a client someone was seeing who they were talking about that the person just felt dead and just dead, you know, like they they knew they should feel something, but they didn't, you know, and, and at some risk for, you know, ending their lives, you know, but see, I think, I mean, a person's kind of halfway competent. It's not like complicated to figure out how to kill yourself. So does the person want to die? Yes. Do they merely want to die? No. Because if, if, if that, was exhaustive of their experience, you know, they wouldn't be there talking to you. But if they're talking to you, then there's something else there, whether they can see it or not. And it's not like I can see it, but I can see the manifestation of it is there in front of me, you know, and, and you can know a thing even by its uh, absence, you know, like a, like a, a form pressed into a wet clay, you know. And so sometimes people can't tell you what's missing, but they can uh, begin to describe the hollow uh, place. And, uh, you know, I'm willing to join people in that place uh, because my assumption is if we go there and willingly that will find that there are other things in that landscape that don't capture attention so readily that that might be lived for, you know, that might answer that, you know, that old Victor Frankl question about, you know, I think it was, it was either Frankl or Yalom who said, um, you know, if you want to know what people would live for, sometimes you can ask them what they'd die for. It's a good question. Oh, that's a good one. Which, what would you die for? I can think of things. I, I could think of things I'd die. A lot of times people who are thinking about dying, they have a tremendous sense of justice and injustice in, in the world. Well, that means they care about their things that they care about, you know, so do they hurt? Yes. Uh, do they hurt so bad that they think they can't go on? Yes. You know, 
Are they at risk of not going on? Yes. Are they merely, you know, that collection of problems? No. I would say no. Never. I've never. I've never seen it. And I would always assume that there is more possible there. You are not that collection of problems. No, you are not a life support system for a collection of problems. Brian Stevenson, fascinating guy. You should interview him. He's a civil rights uh, attorney. He spent a career working with people in prison, children in prison. There's a movie about him, Just Mercy, which is pretty fantastic. I got, I was very near on the DS when he was uh, making a public address at the University of Mississippi some years back. And at one moment, he's, he's, he's just regaling, you know, like the, there's this audience full of brand new, it was the full convocation. So it was like the brand new incoming class to the university. And at, at one moment in there, he says, you are more than your greatest mistake. And, and he says, even if you're a murderer, you are more than your greatest mistake. Uh, I mean, works with people who are in prison, you know, and some of them are, you know, some of them are wrongly convicted, but some of them are, are actually murders. And he means it, you know, I'm sitting behind him. I'm like levitating practically, you know, because see, I need to know this. This is something I need to know. And, and I love to put that in people's ears. Like what if, what if it is so that you are more than your greatest mistake? What might that be? I don't know. Sure would like to find out though. Because they do that a lot in Buddhism as well. They take away the parts that are, are you, are not you. This is not me. This is not me. I'm not my pain. I'm not my suffering. I'm not all these sankharas, you know, these I'm the I'm the the watcher. I'm the awareness. I'm sitting. And, you know, I, 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 I'm familiar with that approach, you know, that, that kind of meditation, the hmm. sort of releasing of the things that are not me. I, I and I, and I know people who use those sort of uh, methods and that they are you know, I've been um, useful there. It, they have less appeal to me. I mean, they're, they're, I guess, I, I guess I know that people take those things to practical places, but I guess I always, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just, you know, too practical, but, but I, you see, I mean, like, why do we do the, you know, those kind of 
exercises where it's like noticing I'm not my emotions. I'm not my, you know, I had this thought and then I had that thought, you know, well, if I'm my thoughts, how could I have this one and that one? So I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my emotion. I'm not my memories. I'm not. Why do we do that functionally with people? What is the benefit of that? And I would say well, the, the, the value, benefit, you talk a lot about the values. So the, yes. But you know, what how is am I the adding value? Yeah. What's the benefit? The benefit of it is it's disruptive, I think, you know, because if you decide like I am my despair and, and, and you are so identified with your despair that there is no you outside of your despair, then if you do these kinds of exercises where people can kind of get a sense of you know, the multitudes, you know, they can get a sense sometimes of the me that is not, you know, any of these particular things. You know, Steve wrote a great paper back in the early eighties, making sense of spirituality that was about that. And I know Steve's quite fond of that. I. I, I, I mean, I understand the concept of it, but I wasn't, you know, like I, I, I guess maybe, maybe it has in part to do with how I came to the work that I do. I, I mean, I came to the work that I do out of sort of a moral bankruptcy. You know, like, you know, like in my life and in the living of it, I had just wrecked things, you know, and, and I needed, and, you know, and if you're just that, you know, someone who wrecks things, well, then it makes sense to like eliminate yourself from the world. But there were people um, there who saw in me things that I could not see in myself. And I don't even know that they could name them, but it was, but the possibility of, and so, you know, that's my job. And so I think when I think about self, I think about it. I don't, I mean, I I'm familiar with this kind of no, no thing, but probably the way that I more is more common for me to think about it. And it, in some ways it gets you to the same place hmm. is, is if you start to think about self as this sort of repertoire, sort of ewing in the world. And you think about that as a creative act. Uh, like an inevitably creative act. Well, you can begin to ask, you know, what what have I made, and what might I, might I make? Now there are the voices in your head that will tell you about the limitations of what you might make. You know, the what you might make of yourself. And if you take those as you know, the way to go, 
it'll it'll take you dark places. It took me, uh, you know, to the heart of depression and addiction and psychiatric hospitalization. So on on your on your way up on your journey, did uh-huh. you did you take did you blame other people? Do you make, um, try to get your patients to take responsibility, or is that is that? I, I you know I I was never really I I blame myself mostly. Sometimes people blame other people. You know I mean. I mean, there are some lousy situations in the world. I've spent good bits of my life, you know, I mean, there've been times I blamed other people, but however hard I blamed anybody else, I always was blaming myself about a hundred times harder than that. I mean, but, you know, do you want to like dedicate your life to that? You know, this is a question and what are the consequences of dedicating your life to, you know, you know, I, you know, it's why, why I carried a copy of Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning around in my pocket, like a compass, you know, uh, back in the mid eighties, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, okay, if Victor Frankel can find meaning and purpose in a death camp, maybe Kelly could find meaning and purpose you know, in Spokane, Washington, you know, I mean, it, you know, it it was like, okay, you know, like, what will that look like? I don't know. And here, you know, I mean, it's good to have, you you can't, I, to my way of thinking anyway, or in my experience and my experience with others, this is not something that is very well worked out by working it out here. You work it out here. And so you need to find people who you know want to enter this conversation of possibility. Mm. Like what what might you create? What might you come? Even with the most savage of ingredients, you know, even with the most terrible things that have been uh, done to you, or maybe that you've done to yourself. I mean, you know, I think about my heroes, you know, they, they aren't any of them who sort of grew up in this pristine world where a drop of rain never fell. And many of them had not only external things that crashed in on their lives, but also were themselves extraordinarily destructive, including self-destructive. I mean. You look at the work that Marshall Linehan created and you think about, you know, young Marsha in a locked psychiatric hospital, do you suppose she thought she could create a body of work that could help people who are, you know, just persistently written off. I mean, it wouldn't be apparent there. But I would say her history and her experience, you know, those raw materials, you know, created something new. And so I guess, you know, I, I, I look, I, you know, I, I look, you know, I read Frankel and I think, 
you know, it's a years of death camp. You can't imagine a worse situation. And then what comes out of it is a psychology of purpose and meaning. And is that still you know, your comp- Is that still a, a, a fix-all compass if someone can find the meaning in their life? Do you still try and help your patients? Do you think that is a, is a magic it, bullet? It, it is central in my, in my work. If I had to say another quality that uh, Steve Hayes has is that he, Steve knows that he doesn't know everything. He knows that he's got some competencies, but doesn't have other competencies. He knows that he can only see what he can see from where he sits. And he's really, really good at seeing other people who are sitting other places and can see other things and, and he recruits them, you know, (laughs) and, and that includes people like me, you know, Steve did not just bring me to Reno, Nevada to carry water for him. He brought me there because he could see a spark of creative work and probably I would say, you know, what got me invited into that first edition of the act book, if I had to say, I mean, I was working on lots of stuff in the lab, the basic relational frame theory, kind of geeky lab stuff and, and, you know, immersing myself in the clinical work. But, you know, I took very seriously when I very first got to graduate school, like if a behavior analyst or to redo Victor Frankl, like it really takes seriously what Frankl was talking about, what would that look like? And I generated the, the first values protocols, you know, I mean, it came out of those first protocols came out of a comp that I proposed, I think, you know, like my first spring in graduate school, now that seemed like a worthwhile task to Steve, you know, I mean, you can think of act. One way to think about act is that on the one hand, you've got the mental trap and you've got certain technologies in there that, you know, might help spring the trap, but now you've got, okay, so the trap sprung, now what, you know, okay. So the trap sprung, what do we need like sit on the mountain navel gaze? No, you know, um, it's going to be, what will we um, do with that life having been sprung from the trap? So, you know, when I was working on those original protocols to engage in these kind of deep inquiries about if you could make something in your life, what would you make? We were working with really serious and severe addiction, people with addiction troubles, like who had like, like, like I think in the initial project that we did, people had like an average of like eight unsuccessful, you know, treatments in their history, six, eight, something like that. They were like heroin addicts who were getting the gold standard 
treatment for heroin addiction and continuing to relapse to heroin and had additional, you know, addictions. And, and, you know, I looked at these people and I thought the, the day that they stop using is the day that, you know, 40 years of doing that is going to like all show up in living color right in front of you. I, I treated someone who many years ago who had encountered their late teen child trying to use their injection equipment. So like they came home and their oh God, uh, late teen child was trying to inject themselves with drugs. And there was this huge blow up and they fought and, and, and the kid eventually says, uh, you know, well, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm fine. I'll just go do this somewhere else. And they ended up facilitating that, you know, well, who wants to wake up to that? You know, who wants to like make contact with like, I had a hand in my own child's addiction, like a direct hand in my own child's addiction. And I knew at the time, and, they, and, and especially when they have a solution to that immediately, which is a shot of dope, you know, a, a shot of dope will take it all away, at least for a minute, you know, at least for a minute, it all goes away. So, you know, how do you stay stopped in the face of that? And I knew that it would have to be something that was more important than that pain, you know, that could, could, you know, keep people in this life. So, you know, what is, you know, what is it that would make all this pain, you know, would make you say yes, you know, to all this pain, you know, what possibility would make that pain worth it? I mean, so, so that's at the center of my work and to my way of thinking, all the work in, in act, getting present, opening up is in the service of this act of creation, you know, of, of, of making meaning and purpose, living meaning and purpose. I mean, for me, you know, for some people that's, you know, they have traditions that they can rely on for some of that, you know, they have uh, religious faith traditions there connected to or like that. I'm more of a kind of Albert Camus kind of a guy myself. And so, you know, I think, you know, you know, I think, I think I don't know anything about ultimate purposes, but I know that I can make meaning in my own life. And I assume that every human being in front of me has got a heartbeat can also, no matter how unlikely the odds. What like, about this guy with his, uh, the son? What happened? 
the ultimate uh, outcome of that uh, particular treatment was, I believe, quite mixed. And the sort of long-term ultimate, I don't know, because of course, when you're working in these populations, people disappear, you know, I mean, they just, yeah. you, you lose contact with them. But I'm not playing for certitude. Mm. I'm playing for possibility, you know, like I'm in the game for what is possible, not what is likely, not what is certain. I mean, addiction will give you certitude. Yeah. You know, okay. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly. Except how uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's a historian who I, and science fiction writer who I love, who's written a series uh, called uh, Terra Ignata. And it refers to you're in Italy. And so if you look at like, you know, old maps from like the, you know, 14th and 15th century, you know, they've got, these are the lands that have names and, you know, the different names. And then there are the seas that have names, but then you get out towards the edge of the map, you know, and you'll see these things like, it'll, it'll say, you know, Terra Ignata, you know, like unknown land. It'll, and it'll say the dragons be there, or, you know, things like that, you know? And so, and that's where I want to travel with people, you know, is, is into unknown lands and, you know, you will definitely see things on the map that say dragons and, and, and the easiest thing is to turn back to what you already know and do what you've already done. And even if it's kind of lousy, it, you know, it's known. But, but I, I, you know, I always assume that even people trapped in the midst of, you know, terrible repetition and patterning that, that there's, there's more that they want. Yeah. Cause they still have desires. So yeah. Longings, both known and unknown. <laughs> because with also with the Buddhism, they say you have to, you know, give up desires, but maybe you have to just transmute them to a higher level into an, an altruistic way into a selfless service for others. Mm. And then that can be your meaning. You know, the, the thing with longings and, and values that, that, that the, the risk is that people latch onto them in a way that is unworkable. So, you know, if I say, what's the value to me, like being a, uh, being a good dad to my uh, children, and you can watch parents who get so like, you know, I've got to be a good parent and they'll, you know, sort of latch onto, you know, they'll have a story in their head about what that means. And, 
what their kids have to do and have to be sure not to do. And they'll exert such strong control that the minute their kids, you know, figure out that you can't really control them, they, they just bust out, you know, they, you know, and you end up blowing up that thing. And so it's that attachment to, you know, like this particular outcome or some known outcome that seems to me to be the trouble. But when you approach something like, I want to be a good dad, or I want to be a good partner to my partner, and you approach it as an ongoing, evolving, creative piece of creative work, creative. then, then you know, that, that seems less problematic, you know, even to the extent that you know, you hit places where you don't know how to move forward. Well, that could be part of it. I mean, when you're writing music, do you, do you just have like this steady flow of, you know, new musical ideas and it just goes on and on and on? No. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, 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 you persist you sit and sometimes you're dumbfounded, mm. but if you're not willing to be dumbfounded, then you don't get to stay in the game. Yeah. You know, you gotta, you gotta be willing to not know you got to keep your feet moving on the days when you're flat as a pancake. Try not to do things that'll create messes that you'll have to clean up later. I've got a meditation I used to offer and it comes from early in my recovery and the it's about sitting on your hands, you know, like when you don't have any idea what to do and you just feel like you're going to explode, then, you know, you just, you know, one under each cheek and just sit on your hands. And the reason for it is because there's not really that much damage you can do in the world if you're sitting on your hands, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's just only so far you can kind of reach and, you know, only with your feet and they're not as coordinated and, you know, and then maybe, you know, and, it, you know, and this, you know, comes out of my own experience, you know, I mean, there were days early in my recovery when I felt incredibly inspired and like something amazing and possible might happen, but there were lots and lots of days when I just thought, you know, you are kidding yourself. You are irretrievably broken and, and always will be. And, you know, what I did on those days is I sat on my hands, you know. Now, at the time, I thought that those were wasted days. But sitting back, I don't think so. You know, I think that there are a lot of days of sitting on my hands between then and now. And so, you know, you know, what I uh, try to practice and what I try to teach people to practice is to, you know, put a hand on what is valuable to them and to uh, move, you know, move their lives in that direction. 
And on the days when that's like impossible, well, maybe it's a day for hand sitting and maybe hand sitting is, is part of that. And, you know, there'll be maybe less mess to clean up, you know, I'll bet you there've been days when you felt like taking your guitars and just smashing them against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, then the next day, you know, you had a bunch of broken guitars. Yeah. <laughs> but I really hear you with that. Yeah. Get that, get a compass and decide where you're going. And, um, someone said to me that, that, uh, a passenger jet is off course 90% of the time, but it, you know, it still always gets to New York or Paris, wherever it's going. And so maybe if you just stop chasing those desires, the des desire for change, this desire, because addiction is, is just banging the rabbit as it comes out of the holes, that game. And there's no end to it. There's no end to You can't, you can't satisfy desire with trying to satisfy, I mean, you can't, if you pour, pour fuel, fuel on a fire, it makes it worse, it makes more desire. So, Well, and even the things that you value, I mean, I think it's worth being prepared. I mean, they're evolving things. It's not an end I mean, goal, is it? I mean, no, and, and it might actually take you somewhere where you see something remarkable that you couldn't have seen from where you were before. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, what we're doing right now, it's not like I could have seen that in 1985. I couldn't even imagine finishing a two-year drug counseling degree, you know. I mean, the idea that I'd be on the international lecture circuit or something like that, I mean, but it turns out that you don't have to know in advance. You just, you, but, but it seems a necessary bit is the practice this day, you know, and you have to find your practice, you know, you have to meet yourself where you are on that day and then ask, you know, this day, you know, as far as I understand it, this day, you know, who do I want to be? And, you know, for me also involved being prepared to uh, know that I will be extraordinarily wrong. You know, if you don't get to be wrong, then you don't get to play, you know. Because I spent about, I spent about 10 years with that very, very devoted yoga practice and, and my, I, I had a pose that was sort of my nemesis and I would fall in it always, you know. And my teacher told me one time, she said, what if falling were part of the pose, you know, and I really took it on, you know, I should, you know, like, oh yeah, like, what would that look like? And, and I would say that that's true of every sort of serious practice. You know, you have to let, you have to learn to fall, you know, you have to let falling be part of the pose. And the only ones who don't fall are the ones that don't practice. You know, that's the only way to avoid falling. I heard you couldn't even fall into child's pose when you started. <laughs> no, 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 I was too, too physically inflexible. I mean, that's, you know, that, that whole like decade of me sort of chasing, like, like, what does it mean? You know, what does self-care look like? And 
and and what does it mean to care? I mean, it wasn't just like the pursuit of the particular elements of self-care, like a to-do list or something like that. Part of it is not really that interesting, but it was like the meaning of self-care and the meaning of the lack of it. And, you know, that's like a great example of something that I got wrong for an embarrassingly long period of time. Like, I mean, I really was neglectful of myself in ways that are, you know, I mean, I, I like, like how I let myself get away with that. I just, you know, I just, I can't explain it. You know, it's just like self-depreciation it, you know, it, it, um, you know, when it was asked in a certain way and that, you know, that, you know, my recognition of that, it happened in practice with other people. And, you know, I wasn't alone in that, you know, when I talked about, you know, when I started asking that question out loud in front of audiences, I started asking them, you know, when did it become okay to neglect Kelly? When did that become okay? When did it become okay to joke about it? You know, like when I get the urge to strong physical exercise, I lie down until it passes. Ha, 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 ha. You know, I laughed at that, but I wasn't laughing alone. I mean, the whole room. It's funny. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's funny, right? But, yeah. but then now think about it like with respect to like a child or someone who you like love. It's not funny anymore, you know? And it really, boy, it was just like, man, how did, you know, how did that happen? How did I get here? How did I not see that? And then I just practiced with like everyone who was like willing to listen, you know, for the next, you know, decade, you know, and, you know, it became part of my life, you know. Dennis Turk on touch on and he talks a lot about compassion therapy and so yeah it's that's really if you can't love yourself you're not in a you got to make your own foundations before you can love other people no? and help well i i, I mean I, I i think i did a lot of good yeah. before then oh yeah i think i did a lot of good before then And I, and I guess when I think about that, I think, I, you know, I feel a little sad that I left myself out of that for so long, but you know, I'm not dead yet. So <laughs> I, I mean, I'm still, uh, you know, and I'm, it, it, it's a good thing when you find a blind spot like that, because it reminds you, you know, and maybe causes you to like think about, well, I wonder where those are now, you know, and, you know, does it put you the sort of finding and practicing in those areas allow you to do new things? I think so, you know, so it allows you to grow in a direction you didn't even, you know, wasn't even in your, I mean, I had been, I mean, in some ways I had been taking care of myself for a long time. Like when I stopped putting drugs and alcohol in my body every day. 
that was pretty, that was a, that was a, that was a kindness to, to me and to a lot of other people. Although I really mostly had other people in mind when I did that. Mm, okay. Yeah. You know, it was. Stop inflicting know, pain on yourself and others. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was really m more, I mean, I, th I think it was more focused uh, initially on, you know, damage that I'd done, you know, people that I'd hurt. But, you know, people are complicated, you know. I mean, on the one hand, I was engaging in the most self-centered possible activity, like every day. Uh, but then, like, what troubled me was how much I was, like, hurting other people. You know, like, both those things can happen at the same time in the same human heart. Yeah. See, that, that, that's why, like, when somebody comes in, they say, here's the trouble, you know, and they present the trouble and you see it and you say, well, that's trouble, you know. I was saying, I wonder what else is there. Like, like wherever you see big trouble, I assume there's big love, you know, like the other side of that. Because well, you wouldn't love, you wouldn't. Exactly. You wouldn't, you wouldn't talk about things you didn't actually really care about underneath. The... No, I mean, if you really didn't care, you wouldn't. You wouldn't care that you didn't care, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like 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 the person uh, who um, wants to die because they don't care about anything. Well, if you really didn't care, you wouldn't care that you didn't care. You just like go on and do the next thing. But, but, but people care and that can become obscured, you know, like who they might be, what they might, you know, you know, their longings can become obscured of them. Is that living for other people? I, I'm in a spiritual organization called the Ethereum Society and they give us one of these affirmations, which is, um, I am the divine presence and I'm creating perfection throughout my whole life. and I did that. I repeated that as I was going around the house um, all the time. And my girlfriend was interrupting me a lot of the time, telling me, pointing out many of the mistakes I'd done, like, you know, leaving my underwear in the middle of the, of the corridor or, you know, leaving turmeric stains on the, just little things, little, nothing, nothing. So, but I finally realized that she is the divine presence that's trying to create perfection. And I was, and also, you know, my mother, when I was growing up and when I had that month with that affirmation, I realized that I need to listen. And there's all the, already the answers are already being given to me. <laughs> yeah. It's a lovely little kind of shift. Yeah. Yeah. Living for other people. If I, if I listen to all the things she, also if she listened to the things that I tell her, because she doesn't listen to me either. <laughs> You know, you know, human beings are, we're complicated. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I that used to be, I think that used to be the enemy for me, but. Do you listen to everything that's, do you take on advice all the time or are you? Oh, oh, I'm, I'm a terrible at negative feedback and just. So you can give it, but you can't take it. 
ridiculously sensitive to uh, criticism. Oh my God, Kelly. Um, I, I don't count it as a virtue or anything. And uh, I haven't given up on myself. I think, uh, you know, I, I think I, you know, I, I'm not done. <laughs> and, and so, so it sounds like know, a cop out. This sounds like, uh, <laughs> no, no, I just mean like, um, I'm a work in progress. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know, I mean, I, I, I hope that I, I get to live for a really long time. Like I really, really hope that I get just to, to make up. For <laughs> no, 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 not like that. I mean. I mean, I, 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 it's difficult for me to take seriously that I can like win my okayness by accomplishment. You know, I mean, I, I mean, that thought occurs to me, but I mean, I, I'm pretty, it's sort of like, oh, good one. No, I don't mean that. I mean, because I find life marvelously interesting and surprising you know like like things keep happening that i could never have imagined and i just want to see you know what's going to happen next you know even like like in like on a global i mean on a personal scale it's interesting to me because you know i've been able to do things in my life personally that I could never have imagined. I've been able to be useful, um, helpful. I've been able to be uh, a good father and a, a good provider. So personally, you know, a good mentor, uh, also bad at all of those things. I've been able to do that also. But even in like in the world, like I, like I think, David Sloan Wilson's right. I think the future is going to be better than the past, like really a lot better, like wildly better. And I'd even be willing to point to data that suggests that that is uh, true. You know, like, I mean, if you look at things like child mortality, maternal mortality over any time scale, on um, you know, long time scale, I mean, if you had any time in the history of the world that you could just be sort of dropped onto yeah. the planet and and have a chance of um, oh, surviving yeah. to adulthood even, there is no time that is better than this time right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Right, right at this moment, the likeliness that you're going to be born into uh, hardship or not survive your first year of life has never been better. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't like the current global political situation. There are lots of things I don't like about it. Mm. Lots of hazards out there, but I, I don't kid myself. I mean, you know, People always think that the time that they're in is like the worst time. They think that the generation just behind them is the worst generation. Like, 
You know, I mean, you can find people saying that, like going back, you know, thousands of years, you know, like I personally, like part of the reason that I think the future is going to be a lot better than the past is because I think that like my children are uh, better people than I, I really do. Oh, okay. I mean, like, I know where the bodies are buried, you know, like I, I know that what I said and what I did and where I've been and the things that I allowed uh, to happen around me that my children would never tolerate, that they, mm. that they would just, uh, that they would find a born that, they, that, you know, you know, racism, you know, what I, we called intellectually disabled children when I was you know, you know, growing up in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to remember this, you know, and it wasn't well, just like somebody that. else, like, you know, I wasn't the leader of the pack, but I, I don't feel sort of less culpable, you know, I like went along, you know, oh, it was a and, that. yeah, yeah, I mean, oh my goodness. Well, and then I think about my kids and like the idea of like say discriminating against someone you know because of you know their sexual preference or their gender identity or their uh, race or an intellectual i mean you know they wouldn't they wouldn't say it they wouldn't do it they wouldn't have it i don't think they're perfect or anything no no but i think if i got to grow up around people like them i'd be better off yeah and yeah. i was growing up around people that I grew up around because it, it was not nice, you know, like I was like not gender typical kid. Like I was way more interested in my mom's sewing machine than I was in, you know, you know, going hunting, uh, with my dad to be a boy in, you know, 1965, who's interested in his mom's sewing machine. <laughs> <laughs> The people who loved me made fun of me. I mean, you know, there were genuinely people who loved me. They were like, oh, look, Nancy's playing with the sewing machine, you know. Kind of humiliation of that. I mean, it was, you know, nobody was like hiding it. <laughs> I was just sort of like, oh, you know, there we are. And I think, would my kids say something like that, you know, to my grandson? The heavens, no. I mean, not in a million years. And if you said it, you know, they'd be like, you know, yeah. getting up in your face. And that's in one less than one generation or one generation. That's a single generation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it does go too far, but you need to have these cultural. You need to have to push the boundaries to. Otherwise, we we wouldn't be changing. So yeah, you, you, you know, when I hear things about like the excesses of, um, you know, acknowledging the horrors of racism that are systemic, you know, I always like, I mean, I'm like, come on, like all of a sudden we're going to worry about, you know, like the day that equality starts to apply to someone else, then we're going to start worrying about, you know, oh, are we going a little overboard here? And I'm like, come on, you know, 200 years of like going a little overboard in the opposite direction. You know, if we uh, overshoot the mark, in places I think we will probably survive that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's the least of our worries. And, but and, I know it's and, even my father, even older generations, they, 
it's seeped into them that they've changed them because they it just seeps down to the consciousness. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, are there excesses in those things? Probably, maybe. Do they need me to help them sort that out? Probably not. I'm, I'm just trying It'll to correct, pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to pay attention and, you know, see if I can't make of myself someone who uh, can, you know, continue to be of support and use in this world, you know, and, you know, assume that they will sort this out in some way that that uh, works for them and assume that there are things in there that they're seeing that I'm just not even seeing yet. Yeah. Well, that gives you so much hope for the future of our race when you can, when you've seen these, these changes just yeah, in your absolutely. time. I yeah. imagine we're on the up positivity. I, 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 I think that it is there in our potential and I'm betting on, you know, human cooperation and, and, listening listening to each other mm. Mm. all right well i'm fully inspired so kelly you've been uh, you want to play rhythm guitar guitar is like one of those things like i actually people ask me do you play guitar and i say well that would be a generous description of what i do with a guitar and they always, they always uh, think I'm like being falsely mo modest, you know, and, uh, you know, so they'll kind of turn to my wife and they'll say, no, nah, he can really play caddy. And she sort of looks at yeah. You're a work in progress, Kelly. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks again so much for taking the time to, to chat and I'll get to work on a song. It was fun. It was fun uh, talking with you, Jack. All right, mate. You have a great day. See you down the road. See you down the road. Bye-bye. If I did all the things that you tell me And you did all the things that I tell you There's nothing that we couldn't do If I listen to you And you listen to me Imagine how happy we'd be Cause you tell me truths I don't like to hear it's painful, you know you can lie sometimes Then I'd listen more to the wise words you've said Like, um, uh, uh. If I did all the things that you tell me And you did all the things that I tell you There's nothing that we couldn't do If I listen to you, and you listen to me Imagine how happy we'd be We'd be healthier, happier, fitter and wiser Richer and thinner and younger and more organized The world would be a better place without war It's a simple thing but so hard to do With ego involved, it's a blink of worldview And if you saw yourself from outside you'd say Why didn't you tell me?
the very air we breathe. But if we're going to be the ones to make the change, it's our thoughts we need to contain and switch our brains from broadcast to receive. And if I lived for you, 